Heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season five of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. And we are here in lovely downtown McMinnville. This is our live audience show with Dave Takish. I got that right. Yes. Um, with Two Town Cider. And so we've decided to kind of go off rails a little bit and uh, go down the trail of apple wine, aka cider. Heck right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So thank you for uh, showing up. Happy to be here. Yes. And uh, let's talk a little bit about Two Town. Is it Two Towns Cider House? Mm-hmm. I've always just known it as Two Towns, and I think yep. that's pretty much you kind of got the market cornered on that. So absolutely, it's kind of like share. Yeah, it's like a one word deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So okay, let's talk about Two Town because you guys are kind of the OG of the cider industry in Oregon and kind of in the Northwest. And so explain who you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yes, we are a fairly old company now in the cider world, right? We are coming into our 12th anniversary this year. And uh, yeah, so we started in 2010 in you know a two-car garage in Corvallis, Oregon. At that time, I think there were maybe a couple cideries in the greater Pacific Northwest, some of which had already opened their doors and closed their doors. So it was kind of a blank slate when we started out. This was, you have to remember, before Angry Orchards kind of introduced cider to the greater nation. My partners, uh, Lee Larson and Aaron Sarnoff-Wood, they had this idea that I thought back then was a little bit wackadoodle. Yeah, but this this idea to, to start a cider house. And, you know, it's interesting that the three of us, we were all homebrewers in college and, you know, we just loved homebrewing and and home winemaking and uh, yes, definitely cider too, but like fermentation was kind of our, our thing. And Lee had gone to school for finance and Aaron went to school for graphic design and I went to school for fermentation science. And after college, we went out into the world kind of uh, to Europe and, you know, on whether it was living there or visiting and found this cider culture thriving in all these different places. In England, uh, you know, the south of England, they have uh, like a rich history of cider. It's one of the biggest cider consuming nations, the UK, right? Northern Spain, there's uh, up on the Atlantic coast there, it's more like Oregon in its climate. Um, They've got a lot of apple trees there and they make a very unique style cider. And then of course, on Western France, uh, Normandy, Brittany, there's cider there. So we went out into the world and like saw all this cider and we came back to Oregon, you know, the heart of the Lambert Valley, Pinot Noir wine country, where all this great craft beer is, all this artisan wine, all this agriculture, right? Like cane fruit, blueberries, two thirds of the nation's apples are grown right there in central Washington, just a stone's throw away. 
Which is crazy because I had no idea that that was actually the stat for yeah. like the Yakima Valley and, yeah. and whatever else. That's a lot of apples. Yeah. And in on the world scale, you know, um, the United States is the second largest apple producing nation. So having two thirds of our, the nation's apples grown like right there in Washington is kind of a mind blowing stat. There's a lot of apples up there. So we came back, you know, and we, we looked around and we said, well, there's all this great beer. There's all this great wine how come nobody's making good craft cider? And that kind of started the idea that Lee and Aaron had about uh, starting the cider company. And in 2010, the company was founded and all we had was basically a 900 square foot two-car garage, a couple, it's like two 300-gallon plastic tanks. We built a walk-in cooler ourselves from like how to build a walk-in cooler.com. I should say Aaron and Lee actually <laughs> did that. Aaron's uncle helped program the electronic thermostat control. You know, we we literally dug a computer out of somebody else's garbage to be our office computer. <laughs> our first delivery vehicle was Aaron's 1996 Nissan Altima. High um, class. We found out very quickly could fit like 14 cases of cider and one half barrel keg before the springs bottom out, you know? And so it was like a uh, very much bootstrap operation. You can imagine three kids out of college. We had negative money at that time. So with some helpful small loans from like Lee's grandma and a few parental figures, you know, we, we got an operation off the ground and we said, man, if we can within two years kind of be effectively utilizing this garage space and maxing out the capacity in this garage space, you know, at least having it pay for itself, we'll consider that a win and a success, right? So in two months, we already were like maxed out on space, you know, uh, with the tanks we had. So we started down the path of getting a little bit bigger tanks. I remember the day the first 30 barrel Bright tanks came off the truck. We bought them used from somebody somewhere and shipped them across the country. And on the relative scale, a 30 barrel tank, it's like a thousand gallons, a stainless steel tank. It's very small in the industry. But at that time, it was, there was huge tanks. And then they got to our parking lot. We're like, how are we going to get this off of the truck? You know? And I mean, I had driven a forklift in when I worked in the brewing industry, but I, you know, it was kind of like, all right, this is the, it's make or break right now. We got to get it off the truck. And so I just remember being terrified. You know, all of our money was like in this, these two tanks on the back of a truck and you, you know, trying to forklift it off. I mean, nowadays you could do it in the morning before coffee blindfolded, but back then it was just terrifying. I will say on the insurance side. Yeah. Working with a lot of ciders, breweries, and wineries, forklifts are an insurance agent's worst nightmare. Yeah. Because that's where most of our claims come from. So as people driving their forklifts through tanks and windows. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've heard stories of people ripping entire walls off of tilt like buildings, you know, because they're just these uh, metal sided sheds, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then the forks go in and then you pull the wrong lever and the whole wall of the building comes off instead of just two holes, you know? Yeah. They're uh, interesting pieces of equipment. Yes, so. handy and dangerous all at the same time. So the point though, is that, you know, we started as a very small company. And the reason I think that we were able to grow and have success back then was because 
we're located in an area of, you know, where people are so into craft beer. That was really the uh, consumer base that supported us in, and also people in the craft beer industry, like other producers, you know, I got a shout out to Nankazi. They were so nice to us when we started knocking on their door, asking about, hey, can we buy some kegs from you? Or like, you know, how do you do this, that, and the other? Same goes with all the other breweries in the area. I think at that time, innovation was exploding in the craft beer realm. And so people weren't afraid to try cider. And that gets us into the stories about like, what is hard cider versus apple wine? And back in 2010, nobody knew what the heck we were talking about. You know, we would do pop-up tastings at a grocery store, just like in downtown Corvallis or, you know, in Eugene or something. And people would say, oh, like what samples are you giving out? And we're like, oh, we've got cider. You know, it's it's cider. Like this is an apple cider. This is a honey cider. And I think we had like a, a Marion Berry cider at that time, you know, and they'd be like, oh, cool. And they'd take a sample and like go to hand it to their kids, you know, oh. <laughs> and you're like, no, no, no. Like, like it's, it's, it's hard cider, you know, like, like apple wine. And they go, oh, so like you take apples and then you, um, like put vodka into it. And we're like, no, it's like fermented, you know, like, like apple wine. I, and they're like, oh, like, how do you get the grapes to taste like apples then if it's apple wine? And we're like, no, I think we're still missing something here. Um, and so, you know, then we go, it was a two year journey of explaining to people like you, you press apples, you get apple juice and you add yeast, you know, yeast is a living organism, non-filamentous fungi, it eats sugar and it poops out ethanol and carbon dioxide and lucky for us some wonderful flavor and aroma compounds too <laughs> uh and so just like wine you know like we ferment it and then if you choose to serve it like a wine like you can call it apple wine it's totally contextual about your culture where you're from if it's in a 750 mil bottle serve still clear and delicate sure you might call it an apple wine just generally because of our culture and context and what people are familiar with serving it cold sparkling in a beer glass it's probably more familiar for people to call it hard cider i want to point out the rest of the world when you order cider they will assume that you are talking about a fermented beverage that has alcohol it's only here in the united states that somehow we have called like uh, unfiltered, fresh pressed apple juice cider. So like, you know, you get cider at a farmer's stand. Harvest in like yeah. Halloween time right. area. Fall. Exactly. You get it in a nice little jug with a handle on right. it and you yeah. do whatever you, you know, yeah. are going to do with it. Yeah. You can mix that with vodka. It works well. Yes. You yeah. also Fire, can do that. Fireball works well yeah. too. Right. Just There's, So I've heard. Yes. yes. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just <laughs> that... Um, you know, we need to be clear about what we're talking about. And so that's why in America, you usually hear the qualifier hard cider when we're talking about hard cider, but at its base, the difference between hard cider and apple wine, there, there isn't any because it's just fermented apple juice. And then it just kind of from there, uh, in terms of how you serve it or, you know, like whatever. So let's talk about how you yeah. serve it because that was, you know, a question. This is usually a grape wine type podcast and, because of Bruno, sweet Bruno, I have nicer wine glasses now because I was told my old ones were shit is exactly what he told me. And of course, you know, and he did offer me some of his glasses and I, I opted to buy my own, but thank you. 
So our hard cider is being served in wine glasses today, but the question was, what should you serve right. hard cider in? Yes. Good question. And you had a great answer when yes. we asked a few minutes ago. Right. And so when people ask about like, you know, what is the right vessel for serving hard cider in, I usually say uh, that it's the vessel that can hold liquid. So mason jar works great. A fancy cut crystal wine glass works excellent. A beer glass works. When it comes to the tradition and history of hard cider, the glassware is less important because it's always been kind of a rustic drink of the people. It's a agrarian, you know, agricultural product. Um, if we want to talk about in the world, right? So if you go to Northern Spain, they'll usually serve their cider in a glass that looks kind of like a tumbler, maybe, you know, like a squat, short, wide open, like whiskey glass or something kind of looks like that. And then they do this crazy thing where they pour it from above their head. In Northern Spain, the um, cider is traditionally served still, or maybe just a teeny bit sparkling. So they've got this really neat thing where they pour it over their head. It's the long pour. I keep hitting the lights. That that's are in the okay. Sorry. Here. Sorry. The decor is giving yeah. the best of this, you. Yes. It's incredibly decorative though. And that's here. probably this why is... I should have sat on that <laughs> side. And that way if it got broke, it was my fault, not yours. So. But you didn't know I'd be reaching up above my head to <laughs> imitate are, a it, Spanish you... pour. I keep doing this because what they do is they hold the glass <laughs> as far down as they can and the bottle as high as they can. And it kind of frosts the cider up into, you know, and then they're actually the tradition is that there's one glass for the table. That's not super COVID friendly right now, uh, but traditionally it's a pour. Somebody takes the drink all in one, it goes to the next person and it goes around the table and just keeps going. And in the meantime, you're eating some like fried blue cheese or salted cod or some other kind of tapas. And then you go to like Western France and especially like Brittany, there, the cider is traditionally served in a stoneware like goblet or uh, like mug. Again, a wide, open and shallow and kind of heavy mug. And you serve the cider in a stoneware mug with crepes. Yes. You call it crepes there. But, fancy pancakes. Yeah, right. Fancy pancakes. Yes. And, and usually savory, not sweet, but, you know, sweet is an option too. And then, you know, you go to England, it's like, you know, maybe an old boot or, you know, wooden <laughs> cup that you carved out, you know, or uh, a leather mug that's sealed with pine tar. You know, if you go back to before they even had glass, they were still drinking cider. So I think the point in all of this, right, is that it's less important what you're serving it in and more that you're comfortable with it or happy with it. You know, my personal preference are um, like white wine glasses because you get a little bit more aromatics driven to your nose when you have a small opening on the top of the wine glass and then a larger place for the liquid to volatilize out. So, you know, imagine like a, a fancier wine glass that's- Kind of a um, tulip shape. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's not what my glasses are. Right, yours are a little more goblet These are more Kino yeah, type because exactly. I did have the smaller ones and those were the ones that were crap. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> So uh, and again, I think in the wine world, there I think maybe a little bit more to um, you know making sure that you serve the proper wine in the proper glass, just because historically that's kind of been what you do. But then again, you start looking through the history of what was popular in terms of wine glasses, 
And we all remember from like the 70s, the like colored like glasses that didn't have any space for the nose or aromatics or, you know, like they were small they were glasses that got super filled shallow to the top. Yes. You know, and I think that's less optimal because you don't have the space for the aromatics to like collect in the glass, you know? So uh, then you keep going back in history. It's half trends, half tradition, half sometimes there is a reason. Um, but circling back to cider here is that just generally, man, it's whatever you got in front of you because cider isn't a pretentious thing. It's a very rustic agricultural, you know, product. And the point is tasting the apple and the where it's from and less about the glassware you serve it in. Yeah. yeah. I originally was introduced to cider when I lived in England. So Strongbow. Yep. And I was blown away because it tastes like apple juice and it will whoop your ass if you're not <laughs> if you because it goes down so easy. You know, and then they also served what was called a snake bite, which was half lager, half cider with like a uh, black currant cordial, I think, in it made it even worse. <laughs> so yeah. just you got drunker faster. And I don't think you can get those over there anymore. Yeah, I think that kind of brings up a good topic that we can talk about is difference between mass produced cider and craft cider and the difference between sweet cider and dry cider. And, you know, historically, all cider was served bone dry because they didn't have in the 1700s like pasteurization. And in fact, Louis Pasteur, I think, invented pasteurization in the late 1700s, but that was like he was a crazy scientist just proving some things. You know, they were just figuring out that there was microbes in wine. Like before that, he like he was the guy that proved that, right? Like before that, everyone was like, well, it's magic. I yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, no, it's like, yeah, it's grapes, they turn into wine and it just happens, you know? And he proved that with experiments, you know, that they'll know there's outside influence that makes that happen. And where was I going with this again? Dry versus oh, sweet yeah, so, okay. versus something else. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, back then they had, <laughs> they had, the cider's getting to me, I guess. You already. haven't even <laughs> touched your glass. So I don't even want to hear about that. I'm think, such a I think you just go off the rails oh, really easily. So historically, right? You harvest apples, press it into juice. It naturally ferments into alcohol, is then preserved. And then you drink it. It's not the only people that kind of figured out how to get residual sweetness into their cider were the French. And they came up with, of course, only what the French could come up with was like, is like the most complicated and labor intensive process possible to get residual sweetness into the cider. And that's a process called keeving. It is quite complicated, but suffice it to say that you basically clarify the juice prior to fermentation. So you have really low yeast loads, really low nutrient levels for the yeast to grow and you keep it at colder temperatures and the yeast get what most winemakers, uh, they have these nightmares about getting these, what are called stuck fermentations where, you know, you want your 14% low dye Syrah to ferment all the way out to dryness, right? Well, sometimes they stop at 10% alcohol and there's still residual sweetness, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like a big problem in the wine world. The French developed this kind of rustic technique to purposefully get a stock fermentation. So their ciders would only be, you know, like three, 4% alcohol, and then uh, like a couple percent residual sugar. 
And they were the first ones to kind of have residual sweetness in cider. To this day, they're still doing that, but compared to modern techniques, it's a very hit or miss kind of hope and pray technique. You know, when I visited France, we did find that even the best cideries at their cider house, they would, you know, get a bottle that has never left their cidery and open it up and it would explode everywhere because it had re-fermented in the bottle and just was gushing and, and they would just be like, oh, say lovey. And then they just kind of wipe the foam off and either pour it for you or grab another bottle. That's just expected there because it's it's just part of the culture, part of the rustic thing of it. And But here that would never fly, right? And so uh, in modern times, we have the ability to pasteurize or filter um, or you know basically stabilize the bottle so it's shelf stable and no longer has the risk of re-fermenting on the shelf. So we go back to like sweet versus dry, right? So historically, most all ciders were dry. And with the invention of pasteurization and stuff, we're able to get sweetness into ciders. I think that my point is just that that does make cider very appealing to people, right? Having a kiss of sweetness really balances out the acid. And yes, you can mask alcohol. Yes, you can make it very, very drinkable. And that's one of the cool things about cider is that it's so friendly. It's so approachable. It's so easy to drink. It's versatile. Versatile. Exactly. You can drink it on a hot day, just like beer, you know, and it's less kind of like getting to your head with the, you know, wine strength kind of things. So I think that is a great place to refill my glass because it is, it's now empty and I know you have more to to share. So it is officially the break to refill your glass. Mm -hmm. So we'll be right back. So we've moved on to the Blueberry Cosmic Crisp, which is beautiful and delicious. And before you start going into any more cider descriptions and actually explain two towns and who, what, where, and you know, all that good stuff. This, I don't know why I hadn't asked you earlier when I had come out to see you a couple weeks ago, but I finally asked you your story when we were standing at the tap house and we were about eight drinks deep, I think at that point in time. So how your interest started in brewing and and all that stuff cracked me up. So let's do a cliff note version of that before we actually get into the drink itself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cliff note version. So uh, let's go back to early 2000s. I was in high school. I was into science. You know, I like science. And, uh, you know, also as a high school kid, also liked beer or the idea of beer. And so, you know, it being difficult to find, purchase, purchase <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I could make some beer. And uh, we we borrowed my buddy's 
older brother's brew kit from like the attic. He was, I think, overseas in the Air Force. So we borrowed, you know, we snuck into the attic, got the homebrew kit out and like that book, you know, the joy of homebrewing. Yes. Oh, man. And there's no looking back after that. I mean, the magic of fermentation and creating alcohol, like, I mean, it was just, and even that, you know, I knew that there was microbes involved, but it still felt like magic, right? I mean, it's a truly wondrous thing. Every night I was like up till midnight in my room, like reading the homebrew book about how to make beer. And so from there, you know, got into college, started brewing hardcore with a bunch of buddies. And, uh, oh no, in high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I couldn't envision myself in a lab, but I like science and I like cooking. And so, uh, it was, I think senior year and our social studies teacher, like it was like nearing the end of the year. And he was just like, yeah, just let's go around the room and just what do people want to be when they graduate? You know, what do you want to do with your life? You know, and people are like, oh, I want to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer and advocate for civil rights or something. And then, you know, it came around to me and I was like, oh boy, that's a big question. And I had just found out that Oregon State University had a fermentation science program. And so I just said like, oh, I'm going to be a brewer. And everybody laughed, you know, everyone just was laughing like it was some big joke because back then artisan wine craft beer, they were just getting started. And, you know, adults didn't know that you could get a degree in fermentation science, you know, the enology was a thing, right? And so, so that was kind of like the defining moment of like, I guess I am going to go do this. Like, that's what I'm going to pursue for a career option. So got into college, was studying fermentation science, homebrewing like mad, a lot with Lee, my partner at Two Towns. And then we started making wine and also I dug out an old cider press that my dad had. It's like this antique thing that must be like 200 years old. I mean, it's rusty. And I remember the first batch of cider we pressed, you know, like it's all from one tree, pressed that cider. And, you know, back then I was like, you know, cider is okay. It's like, it's not great. You know, it's kind of got this like metallic taste to it. <laughs> and A little rusty. Like, I had no clue, but like now looking back, I'm like, oh, because we used the 200 year old press that was covered in rust, like, <laughs> and then putting acidic cider, like apple juice in it, you know, like it was stripping 200 years of metal and rust flakes out into the juice. Like I'm sure of it. But back then I had just had no concept that that yeah. might be like a thing, you know, could potentially poison you yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of the first batch of cider was with my dad's old press and that's actually in my office now as a like decor item it holds some plants so i think there's a philodendron growing in it right now <laughs> and uh yeah studied uh, fermentation science in as an undergrad and got the opportunity to do some graduate work in winemaking so i studied kind of the effect of saccharomyces and non-saccharomyces yeast on the aroma and flavor of uh, Pinot Noir wine. So, you know, Pinot Noir is big up and coming. Um, it's what a lot of uh, the wine department focuses on there at OSU. And that's how I got into the wine world, basically. After this just so super funny thing is my first job as an undergrad when I was kind of on the beer track was cleaning kegs, right, at a brewery. 
like all day long, just cleaning kegs. It was Pelican Pub and Brewery on the coast. You know, shout out to Darren Welch. Yep, Pacific City. Incredible brewer to this day, even with all the crazy things everyone does, his beers are still just like the most solid, most consistent, most excellent beers. And I learned so much when I was there, mostly how to clean kegs and dismantle them. And then, you know, finished my undergrad, went to graduate school, and then got into the wine industry. And the first day on the job at this winery, you know, I show up to work, like ready to make some wine. The winemaker had a truck full, like the back of his pickup filled with nasty old beer kegs that he had bought from some brewery because he thought they would be good kind of like leftover vessels, you know, for like small little lots of wine or something. And he goes, hey, Dave, didn't you used to work at a brewery? Can you just like take those all apart and clean them? And I was like, oh my God, I just got a master's degree to go back to doing the same thing I did freshman year. So anyway, uh, that that's kind of the story. And so in from the wine industry, you know, got into, uh, you know, I was done with Crush and my partners, Lee and Aaron, you know, they had the idea for the two towns. So I thought, oh man, well, this actually be pretty cool. And it's halfway between beer and wine. All up front, the techniques and the science and the equipment you use for winemaking is the same as for cider. And then on the back end for like packaging, it's actually much more like beer, right? Because you're dealing with a carbonated product, something that can um, spoil easy. There's the chance of re-fermentation, so you have to pasteurize and things of that nature. So it's just really fun to be half and half in the beer and wine world, kind of. It's actually a really good segue to actually just start talking about two towns and who, what, you know, where, all that good stuff. I was so blown away. I didn't know what to expect when I came down to meet you a couple weeks ago. I mean, I'm very familiar with Two Towns. You guys have been at my golf tournaments that I've thrown in the past. Always a fun time. You always have such a great crew. But we'll talk about the packaging area, but that was like the science geek and the mechanic geek in me. I'm not mechanical at all, but I'm really fascinated by it. was pretty cool. So I think we should start with the product and the making and just what goes into it because... I yeah, didn't for sure. know. I mean, yeah. I, I just assumed that, you know, when you add flavors, it's some sort of artificial flavor that you're adding. And that absolutely was not. Yeah. Not. And I will have you know that my husband is very upset with you because he taught me something that is a useless fact <laughs> of knowledge. And I rattled it off the other day about meadow foam. And he's oh, like, yeah. he's like, seriously. And I'm yeah. like, I'll introduce you to Dave. You can tell him thank you yourself. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yes. So cider making first and foremost starts basically with the apples, right? You can derive flavor from different apple varieties, just like different wine varieties, you know, have different profiles, sorry, different grape varieties. So, you know, inherently, you know, you use Italian Sangiovese grapes, you end up with an Italian style wine because of the just the constituents, inherent constituents of those grapes. And then, of course, the techniques you use, like in Italy versus you go to Burgundy and they've got, you know, different grapes and different techniques, and you, you end up with two different wines. And so, same thing in the cider world. There's basically kind of two big classes of apples there's the culinary and dessert apples. So those are things that uh, would be usually considered eating apples, pie apples, things of that nature. 
And then there's the bittersweet apples. And these were apples that are bred specifically for cider making, and they usually have a lot more tannins to them. Both kind of groups of apples make excellent cider, but they make very different styles. So what we were drinking here to begin with was our 10-year anniversary cider. You would consider that maybe like a, a new world modern style cider. The apples used in it are apples that you use for eating, right? So there's like a lot of John and Gold, Macintosh, I think maybe some Cox's Orange Pippin in that or Newtown Pippin for sure. And it makes a very fruit forward, clean, aromatic cider, high acid, right? Similar to the white wines, like if you think about white wines. And then you can use um, either, you know, if you use Spanish or French or English apples, they tend to be much lower in acid and instead have a ton of tannin content. So this would be phenolic content that would lend to astringency as well as some like more medicinal earthy flavors. So, you know, depending on what you want, that's you different apples, right? But when you have the apples, you got to juice them. And the big difference that I like to point out in the juicing process between the wine industry and the apple industry is that in the wine industry, the pressing of the grapes, whether you're talking about white grapes that you're just pressing the grapes to get juice, or if you're talking about red grapes that have already been fermented on the skins, and then you're pressing them out, that pressing process is very important to the body and character of the wine. In the cider industry, there's one goal. Press the apples as hard as you can to get as much <laughs> juice out of it. So a long time ago, you know, at Two Towns, when we were first starting, we, we were like, we could save up and buy an apple press, or we could keep, you know, we could just source juice from the people who already have the equipment for it. And so we kind of make this conscious move to focus on the cider making and let the pressing be, you know, done by the people who have all the great equipment. We talked about the size of our facility when you went mm -hmm. through, we would need, you know, it's like, I don't know, like 20, 30,000 square feet. And we would need a facility twice or three times that big just to store all the apples and the press. And it's like a whole different world of just making juice. The great thing for us, right, is that we have that industry already set up in Yakima, where there's access to fresh pressed juice year round, which is really awesome, right? So any time of year, we can get the right blend of apples. We can get the right specs on our juice. So we want to make sure there's the right sugar content, acid content, a flavor profile. So we look to make sure that there's the right blends of apples, the right uh, pH. Um, and the interesting thing is like in the wine world, you can get all those constituents in one grape variety, right? So like Cabernet Sauvignon has all the tannins, all the sugar, all the flavor that you need. In the apple world, it's less common for all of those profiles to be in one apple variety. So historically, most ciders are blends of apples. So you get the balance of sugar and acid or tannins or flavor, right? Does that make sense? Yep, totally makes sense. So yeah, so once you do all that and you get this juice, then fermentation is the next step. And a lot historically, people have let uh, spontaneous or wild fermentation occur. You get a little bit more funky profile that way. If you're going for more like a clean, modern profile, you probably want to be pitching like uh, wine yeasts. Like, so we use a lot of white wine yeasts. We use different yeast strains to drive different flavor profiles. So for example, 
this 10-year anniversary is fermented with a champagne yeast because we want it to be clean and racy and express those apple aromatics. We have a pineapple cider that we ferment which is delicious and and so good and that is so good not just because of the super high quality pineapple juice we use we source that from costa rica and it's a specific variety costa rican gold and that's my job is going out and saying hey where can we get pineapple juice what's the best pineapple juice you know we tried pineapple juice from thailand nope that's not going to cut it you know and we found this one processor in Costa Rica that has the best pineapple juice, we think, and that character we're looking for. But also, we use a specific yeast strain to uh, drive additional pineapple aromatics, right? That yeast strain has a lot of tropical notes when it ferments. Again, it's this combo between your starting like apples and then what the yeast strain or the techniques that you're using for fermentation. Any questions so far? <laughs> I could ask you questions all day long. Okay. So let's talk about like the sourcing of some of your other things. So like the blueberries and the marion berries yeah. and the meadow foam honey, which Ooh, yeah, let's talk sure. about that because that okay. is, for sure. do any of you know what meadow foam honey is? Probably not. I didn't either. So yeah, well, you will in a minute. You know, it's funny on my way here, I saw several fields of meadow foam flowers. Um, that's what sparked the conversation yeah. with my husband the other day, because I saw it as we were going out to like, I think a wedding or a party and I'm like, Hey, did you know what that's called? And then yeah. I went into it and he's like, you need to stop talking to people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they're sure. Well, right now there's a lot of radishes blooming. Those are a little bit more white flowers, but every once in a while you'll pass a field with, it's like, kind of looks like buttercream. Like the whole field is this kind of yellow white and the, the flowers are, are pretty short here in the Northwest, we grow this crop called meadow foam. And the farmers, what they're looking for are the seeds so they can mill the seeds into an oil. And I believe that that oil is used for high-end cosmetics, especially in like Asia. But I think also they might use it for like high-precision machine oil too, or I'm sure there's a bunch of different uses for it. So the farmers hire the beekeepers to come in with their bees to pollinate the flowers so that they can get the seed, right? So a beekeeper will bring in a bunch of hives and put it in the middle of this 20 acre meadow foam field. And when the bees pollinate the flowers, you know, they start making honey from that crop. And traditionally beekeepers have actually separated that honey out from the rest of the honey because they used to get high end dollars for that golden, you know, light colored honey because the that's stuff what, in the bear in the bear. That's what people want. That's what consumers were paying for. And the meadow foam honey is like really dark, like dark, dark brown. You can't see through it. But the interesting thing is that the flavor profile of that honey is out of this world. It has flavor notes of a lot of people say like sassafras or root beer. Toasted marshmallow is a big one. A marzipan. I think it's got a ton of vanilla characteristics. Um, in fact, I think that if you measured the actual vanilla compound vanillin that's in meadow foam honey, it's like through the roof. So you get a lot of these creamy root beer vanilla notes. So when we first started making cider, we were like, oh man, we wanna make a bold cider that's unique, different, a little higher alcohol. And so we started blending in this metal, local meadow foam honey and that's what made the bad apple, which to this day is, one of the best-selling ciders. It was 
for a long time, one of the best selling single serves in the nation. And we only sell it on the West Coast. I mean, it's a, a really popular cider and it's because it has all these creamy vanilla characteristics and it's rich and dark and uh, just a little bit different than a more fruit forward cider, right? So that's the meadow foam honey story. Nowadays, people have caught on and everyone wants meadow foam. It's very expensive now, but it's a wonderful honey and I recommend anyone out there to try it for sure. When we talk about other sourcing stuff, you know, again, you, you talked about the expectation of these like flavors, like adding fla a flavoring. And, you know, that is something that's kind of a holdover from, I would call it the dark times of cider in the United States. And this would be, you know, in kind of like the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, when cider just didn't exist, right? What was out there was like uh, Hornsby's, right? That was a big thing, you know, and it's got the classic, it's like overly sweet and it's got the Jolly Rancher flavoring, right? In it, and that's just flavor put in it. Well, it turns out for a period of time, they were actually making that out of just a malt base. There wasn't any apple in it. And they actually got in trouble with a tax bureau. And this is the best of my knowledge. They were claiming cider tax class, but it was actually a malt beverage that was flavored. And so for a period of time, there was just this small segment of, and this was before the gluten-free revolution, right? So there was just this kind of one option. If you didn't like beer and you were at a beer bar, what do you get? Like the flavored sweet alka-pop thing. Yeah. And <laughs> um, so- you know, that was a big thing we had to combat when we started this craft cider, you know, where we were really proud of the ingredients we were using. You know, I mentioned our quest to find the best possible pineapple juice. And now we like have all these logistics around shipping frozen containers of fresh pressed pineapple juice from Costa Rica to the port of Seattle, just so we can use it in our cider. Same thing goes with our like blueberry, that blueberry cosmic crisp we just released. That's fresh pressed blueberry juice, Pacific Northwest sourced and by using high quality ingredients, you bring to the table a depth of character and a nuance that you just cannot replicate with like flavorings, right? Flavorings are kind of heavy handed, one note. Very sweet. Usually. Yeah. And more that Jolly Rancher kind of thing. And you know, like for the Blueberry Cosmic, like one of the things I love about it is that there's this florality to it. That like, it's like, I even forgot until we made it. I was like, dang, like, you know, I was kind of almost expecting more blueberry jam, but instead it's like more floral because you get all that nuance from just a fresh pressed, high quality juice. I'm looking here at this other six pack we have that another gold medal winning cider. Which we're going to crack in just we're a second. We're about to crack and get the audio for it Because my glass is empty again. Yeah. Um, so that's the cherry that. sublime. And, you know, that's made with fresh pressed Mexican key lime juice and then Washington sourced Montmorency sour cherries. And so that one is like a crazy racy cider. It's very high in acid, but it's electric. And so we, the marketing team kind of went a little overboard on that. <laughs> it, the it looks electric, a little uh, vibrant six pack wrap. It there, looks a but, little 70s, yeah, like a little like, psychedelic. It's a little psychedelic, but I think that represents the cider very well. But the, the cool thing is, is like you get all that electric character that you wouldn't get with just using flavorings, you know? Anyway, with that, I will just say that, you know, my dad has this saying, and it's, I don't know why he has this saying, because I think he's from Long Island, but he says that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And I think it's very true in the wine world, you know, or any fermented fermentation world, like what you put in is what you're going to get out. You can't make something better 
than the quality of the ingredients you're using to begin with. You sure can make it worse, for sure. You can mess up, but it's very hard to start with poor quality ingredients and then go up from there. So that's why we, to this day, that's a big part of my job is making sure we get the best quality ingredients for our fermentations. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good place to um, say, my glass is empty. And um, I, th I think everybody has empty glasses. So we're going to We'll crack that baby open here and refill my glass. Heck yeah. This is like summer in a glass. That's what this reminds me of. This is really, really yummy. This is very much my flavor profile. Yeah, that perfect. Are we, are we recording right mm -hmm. now? Okay, awesome. Perfect. Yep. Um, I'm glad I'm on it here. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, the cherry sublime that we are trying, that's the Montmorency tart cherries and that bring that really perfumey kind of thing to the table. Um, and then the Mexican key lime, you know, that's hard to beat that, yeah. you know, just like that, that fresh lime thing. And so it's very spring, summer, hot weather and very high acid and, um, you know, just enough sweetness to balance that acid. I think that's a big thing that we always strive for is balance between acid and sugar. It's delicious, whatever it is. Yeah. The balance is great. The delicious awesome. is great. Awesome. To kind of wrap this last little bit, bit up, there's other things that you guys do that are very wine-like as far as products. And so let's just highlight those quick, and then we'll talk about how people can find you and sure. experiences you have yeah. out there. And then I'll ask my million-dollar question. Okay. All right. So we have a line of products called, well, it's our our Pomo. That's a, a basically an apple port. Delicious, by the way. So the the word pomo is a French word and you know in Normandy is really where they make pomo. That's also the region right where not only the French cider comes from but also the Calvados which is the apple brandy that they're so famous for in Normandy. And in fact if you go to Paris it's kind of hard to find cider cuz it's again it's like everyone in France drinks wine, uh, cider is less popular besides in like the heart of Normandy and Brittany. So, so you may not find cider on the menu at restaurants in Paris, but you surely will find Calvados, like their apple brandy is very famous. So back in the day, actually Pomo was outlawed. It was illegal to make in France for some crazy reason. Basically, Pomo is just where you take cider that's just started fermenting and you add apple spirits and raise the alcohol content up above 16%, basically, that will inhibit or kill all the yeast that's there. And suddenly you have a shelf-stable product, right? Because you've raised the alcohol content. There's still plenty of sweetness left from the apple juice that hasn't fully fermented. It's the same technique that they use to make port, except it's just port usually is made in Portugal and with wine grapes and wine spirits. But in France, they would do it with apple juice and apple spirits. It was kind of this backwoods thing, actually. Uh, Normandy is a very rustic agricultural area. And so for whatever reason, Pomo was outlawed for a long time, but because it was so ubiquitous in French kitchens, like it's a very common ingredient for cream sauces. So like if you're familiar with using like sherry in cooking, it would, it would kind of be the same thing, right? You're bringing some sweetness, some caramel, nutty, kind of character to the table. 
it's so funny because when we went to make our pomo, we were like, oh, this is like fancy as fuck, right? Like this is like so <laughs> fancy. This it's so bougie, and we're gonna put it in these oak barrels and age it, you know, and like. And then we found out that it was like totally a redneck thing in like you know <laughs> France, you know, we're like, oh well, yeah, I guess, but. Anyway, uh, so like um, we make our own pomo that's a kind of our own twist, right? Where we're using more American apple varieties common to our area rather than the French bittersweet apple varieties, although we still use a small amount of those to bring some tannins to the table. But our pomo is a little higher in alcohol content. It's 19% as opposed to 16%, maybe a touch sweeter than the French pomos, but overall the concept is very similar. Ours definitely has higher acid though, because the apple varieties we're using are high acid varieties. Where in France, they're specifically low acid varieties. It's very simply apple port. And we've done a few riffs now on that where we do a Marionberry apple port. It was yummy. And that is delicious on some vanilla ice cream. Oh my goodness. And then the latest one we just came out with, which actually just won a gold medal at Glintcap, which is the Great Lakes International Cider and Perry Festival. It's in Michigan every year. This year, there's something like, there's well over a thousand different ciders entered and um, judged. And our blueberry lavender pomo just won a gold. And that is aged in Pinot Noir barrels. And then at the end, we finish with some dried lavender flowers in the barrel. And it's this beautiful, it's a little less acidic than the pomo or the marissimo because the blueberries are a little lower acid. And so with the lavender, it's just like, it's very luscious and silky and beautiful. And that's actually my new favorite one on vanilla ice cream, but. <laughs> it needs to be Tillamook vanilla. Yeah, no, it's, just I throwing mean, that in there. yeah, it's like a match made in heaven for yes. sure. Okay, so now that we know you have this, where do we find it? Ah, Where okay. do we find all of this? Okay, well, the easiest thing for sure is that if you go to our website, twotownsiderhouse.com, it's with the number two, there's a cider finder, cider locator-like option, and you can click it, put your zip code in. For those people who don't live on the generally West Coast, which is mostly where we sell, we also sell basically West Coast and like kind of all the states that are one in from the West Coast. <laughs> and then we also sell in Chicago uh, and Minnesota, just moved into Colorado actually, and Idaho. But for those of you that don't live in those areas where cider is like sold in stores, we do have an online portal as well. So you can ship it to almost, I think most states we can ship to. So mostly the West Coast and use the cider locator. If you can't, Find cider near you. You can always order, order it online. Okay. For sure. yeah. And where's the tap house? The tap house is in Corvallis, Oregon, on the way into Corvallis uh, on Highway 34. It's just a humble little, it's actually just next door to where we started in that 900 square foot garage. It's like the same complex, I would say, but just uh, a slightly bigger building in that little business park. And mm -hmm. that's actually where we have our, um, all the barrel storage, you know, where we have our oak footers, we have our uh, penal barrels that we do all this aging in. But there we have like, I think, a tw 20 tap handles. So mm -hmm. there's like 20 ciders on tap. 
plus all the bottles and all the rare stuff and all the limited release stuff and some, you know, vintage cataloged age stuff. Um, so it's worth a stop in because it's just right on the side of the highway as you come into Corvallis. There are yeah. so many goodies. And when, yeah, I swear I look like a lush when I left there because I think there was probably about 12 glasses in front of me at, the, at that point in time. There's a little bit of everything. From, did did from you Chris. have, did you have a favorite? I really liked the Thorns one. Oh, the um, Two Thorns. The Two Thorns. Yeah. That was so good, which is which is a partnership with the Portland Thorns, right? Yep, yep. And it's rose petals and raspberries, if I remember right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. which sounds really weird, but it is the most beautiful magenta, bright pink color, and it is just, it was delicious. Yeah, the floral notes of the roses and raspberries, they, they just really go together. It's like seamless, you know, from raspberry to rose raspberry to rose petal and you don't you can take that and post right yeah okay uh, <laughs> raspberries to rose petals and you're not sure where one ends and when the next like begins you know and that was a cider that i had dreamed of and had was like carrying around in my soul for like years i was like i gotta make this a reality and then we had the excuse when we partnered with the thorns and the portland timbers who we sponsor so that was like a fun excuse to make this collaboration. Yeah. Cider. Well, yeah. it's beautiful. I highly, even if you just want to look at it, it's really just pretty. Yeah. So it'd be a great color for a sweater or, <laughs> or shoes or I don't know, something. So, okay. And the Pomo was really good. So I'm I didn't have any ice cream. It. You totally ditched me by yeah. the time we got to that one because yeah. you ha actually had a meeting to go to. But I need to grab some of that from the boys down there, somehow sure. get my hands on it. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And then I'll just put one shout out too, is you can get at the tap room some, um, the squeaky cheese. I don't know if you've ever heard of squeaky cheese, but it's like new cheese and we get it from OSU, their cheese department. And like, if there's ever been a classic pairing, right? Cider and cheese. I mean, cider is made in the same region that cheddar, the town of cheddar is in England, which is the birthplace of cheddar cheese. And so if you've ever like need a quick pairing for like, what am I going to drink with this? Or what am I going to eat with this cider? Just know that cheese and cider is like the original combo. It's It always has been and always will be um, a perfect pairing. Yes. Yeah. And if you have not had cheese curds, they yeah. do squeak. Yeah. It sounds like rubber and they are not my favorite. Being a Tillamook <laughs> cheese girl that... I had bagged those things as my first job and freaking hated oh, okay. them. So I hated yeah, the right. whole thing. Yeah. So everybody else loves them. They're really great deep fried. Yeah. I will say they are great deep fried. Yeah. But okay. so is everything, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Little ranch. Everything's almost, in, yeah, you can't ruin it. Okay. Million dollar question. Last question of the day before they start asking you questions. Okay. Okay. You are on an desert island, basically, deserted island. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all by yourself. Mm -hmm. You get to take one celebrity, dead or alive, one drink, and one snack. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. And and for the drink, are we talking about alcoholic drinks? You can take whatever you want. If you want to take milk, take milk. I don't really care. I'm going to – It's this is crazy. I don't want to feel like I'm betraying anybody here. But if I had to go to a desert island with one drink – it's going to be a Pilsner. I am a fan of a very well done, and I'm not talking about the American adjunct rice corn, like mass produced Pilsner. I'm talking about like a classy Northern German Pilsner with noble hops, like 
you can you can't ever get tired of a well done pilsner. How you preserve a well done pilsner on a desert island? It doesn't is matter. Different, that's Those what, are totally different okay. logistics that okay. weren't part of the question. So yes. uh, okay, and then snack. My favorite snack in the world right now is actually the Cosmic Crisp apples with a good sharp cheddar. That's like the best snacky thing, and you get all the sweet and the fat and salty and acid and everything. Savory. And it's, oh, it's so good. And then celebrity. Oh my gosh, to like hang out with a celebrity to hang out with. Probably gonna go with Patrick Stewart, Jean Luc Picard oh, from you okay. know the Captain of the Enterprise. I mean, we've not had him yet, and we haven't even <laughs> gone down the Star Trek path with any of these questions. So okay, I mean, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so I mean, he seems like a pretty cool guy to hang out with. Um, I guess I'm gonna go with Patrick Stewart, yeah, but that I just feel so much pressure. I, like I feel like I'm gonna be judged. <laughs> On my celebrity choice, but I mean, come on, Patrick Stewart, like he's he's classy. Yeah, he's he's classy, classy. and yeah, I I, think you need to listen to some past ones because you've like kicked it out of the park compared to some of the other ones. Even I mean, even every once in a while, I get asked, and I'm just like, yeah. I usually go back to Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler, yeah, and I yeah, Yeah. and I don't know why. I just think he'd be really cool to hang out with, and he has great scarves for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like for me, I'm like, well, you know. If anyone can make a good cup of tea, it's probably Patrick Stewart, right? There we go. So, like, that's probably my island buddy, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been real. Thank you so very much for making the trek, bringing the goods, all the great information that is going to be useless knowledge for me to use from here on out. And the drinks have been amazing. So, thank you for really being kind of our first true cider that we have showcased. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. How about a cheers? Yeah. Okay, let's, uh, who has questions? Yes. Fermentation versus, I guess, the best way to serve it on tap. Do you prefer, because I I prefer anything on nitro. Mm. Mm -hmm. Have you guys done a nitro cider yet? Or is that something that might be in the future? Yes. We've experimented with that and we may or may not have had that on tap to the public. To be honest, it's been 12 years now. So at some point I do remember us experimenting with that. So for those of, uh, especially the wine people out there that may not know about nitro. So when a beer or cider is served on tap, um, you've got this keg of it, right? And you have to get it out of the keg through the beer lines, through the tap into the glass. So you pressurize the keg with carbon dioxide, which you know helps the carbonation, but also pushes the liquid out of the keg. You also have the option of instead of carbonating with carbon dioxide and pushing with carbon dioxide, you can use nitrogen or more commonly a blend of nitrogen and carbon dioxide. And this gives you the classic Guinness pour. When you think about a Guinness stout or stout beers, um, they traditionally push with nitrogen. Nitrogen bubbles are smaller than carbon dioxide bubbles. And so they give a little bit more smooth and creamy, velvety mouthfeel. Carbon dioxide, when it's dissolved into solution, also creates a carbonic acid, which is why like, I'm sure everyone has had this experience where you're you're drinking your can of Coca-Cola and you're like, "Mm, nice, snappy, crisp Coca-Cola, and you leave it on the counter for a while and you come back, all the carbon dioxide is gone. And it tastes like flat, 
but it's not just flat in a mouthfeel sense of that there's no carbonation, but it also isn't quite as acidic. And it's because you don't have that carbonic acid there. So what I'm getting at is that cider, right? When you serve it carbonated on tap with carbon dioxide, it kind of has the snap and pop to it. And when you serve it with nitro, it will be much, much smoother and creamy. And I would say that generally that doesn't play as well with with ciders because they're meant to be fresh and lively and kind of snappy. But I have seen everything under the sun out there in terms of wild, crazy flavor combos with cider, including cider on nitro. And yes, I've had awesome ones. So it's kind of like just a twist to make it different. We don't have any on tap on nitro now, but I'm sure that in- I was just thinking some of your darker ones might just grab that and be- Yeah. That feel would be even nicer with some of the, like the dark one you were describing earlier. Mm-hmm. That's that. Yeah. I could for sure see like our black currant mm-hmm. cider or a Marionberry cider, uh, you know, uh, dur- especially like during the holidays being served with a creamy, like foamy top. And like, yeah, that would be, that would be good. Yeah. 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 Okay. Who's it, next? It would be, I just want to point out this. It would be awesome to do a nitro blackberry cider with a scoop of vanilla ice cream as a float. That would be really fun. Ooh, that would yeah. be fun. <laughs> okay, I'm sounds trademarking like a, it right now. Sounds like a so good everyone's... event. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next question. Yes, my question is about the fruit versus the apples. Mm-hmm. So I saw from the can, uh, all the things you're talking about have a base of apple. What? How do you ferment the fruit? Is it co-fermented with the apples? Do you ferment it separately? And what's the approximate ratio of the apples versus the the key lime or the pineapple? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question. In terms of ratios, it's all over the board because that's just dependent on what you're trying to get out of it. And to some degree, how expensive like the dragon fruit is that you're using, or also just the fact that do you want it to be more fruit forward or more apple forward? So that's like a cider maker's decision about what ratio. But uh, it's a great question about co-ferments versus like blending or or what. And I think that um, basically what it comes down to is that you've kind of got two op- three options. You can ferment separately and then blend. You can, so you could like ferment blackberries and ferment apples and then blend the two wines together. You can co-ferment. So you can put the blackberries in the apple juice and do a co-ferment. Or you can blend in blackberry juice after fermentation. And they give three kind of subtle different perceptions of flavor and mouthfeel. So usually when you co-ferment, you're extracting off of the skins or seeds or like you're allowing the yeast to access onto that fruit. The flavor compounds may change. And what usually happens is you get a more homogenous integrated flavor, right? integration is what I meant to say there. So like blackberries and apples, you co-ferment them, they're going to be well integrated by the time you get to the final product. Blending them in after fermentation, you might get a more just punchy blackberry forward character and maybe mask some of the apple more. If you do side-by-side fermentations, then you can get a lot of expression of like the yeast acting on this things individually. And then I guess it would just kind of depend on how you blend it and what ratio, right? 
So I think what's most common in the cider industry, because right now I think people really want bold fruit forward flavors. So if you do an apple blackberry cider, generally most people are going to expect it to be very blackberry forward. Not that with less blackberry, it means it's less good. It's just more that just a general consumer perspective, you know, like if you only get a little bit of blackberry flavor, you kind of feel like a little let down. So we, for example, with our Marionberry cider, we co-ferment with puree and we blend back at the end with blackberry uh, juice or Marionberry juice. So we're trying to get like as much expression of the Marionberry because for us, we're showcasing in that cider, we're showcasing the Marionberry. That is what we're so proud of. And that's the point of that. Other people can definitely use some beautiful heirloom apples and use a kiss of blackberry and make something elegant and wonderful also, but it's just kind of what are you aiming for, right? Okay, one more. What is the funnest or wackiest flavor you've ever created? <sighs> okay. We did this crazy thing once when my buddy, who was my roommate in college, he started Nectar Creek Meadery. And we decided to do this collaboration together between Two Towns and Nectar Creek. And so we took these wine barrels and we filled them halfway with apple juice. And then we added a crazy amount of honey. And we kept adding honey at, and, and it fermented. It started fermenting in the barrel. And we kept adding honey as the fermentation was progressing and just kept doing it until the yeast couldn't go anymore. And then we added a little bit more honey. And then we put it in a barrel. And then I accidentally forgot about it for three to four years. And then we found it. And it had, because there was still some headspace in the barrel, it had developed its own. And I think it was probably from the yeast that was in the honey that was kind of released once it got into the liquid, right? And it developed a floor yeast, which is actually part of sherry making and, and those kind of uh, those styles of uh, oxidized wines in Portugal. They have this floor yeast, which means that it's a yeast that grows on the surface of the liquid in the air liquid interaction right there. And it creates a mat of like a film on the top that has this crazy pattern. It's like... Um, it's like, a, like, you know, when you go to the beach sometimes and there's those patterns in the sand, it's like that, just like covering the top of the liquid. And I was like, oh my God, this wild natural floor yeast is just like sprouted up and it was giving us all these crazy flavors. And then I forgot about the barrel for like another year. And when I came back, all the floor yeast had disappeared and it was just a clean top on the cider, you know? And I was like, oh my God, where did it go? It sunk to the bottom. And Long story short, we ended up bottling it and it was this crazy sizer, which is an apple honey hybrid and that had the floor yeast and had been in barrel for like four years. And it had notes of dried apricot and honey and like a little bit of nuttiness and actually had some people from, I think it was like the QA lab in Ninkazi who happened to be like stopping by and they were like, this is one of the best things you guys have ever made. And I'm not sure I could 
ever recreate it ever again. There's probably one bottle left in existence. I was just going to ask, but, like, where's the bottle of this? I, I want to try it. We, we only made, I think it was one or two barrels. And so that was the funnest, craziest, wildest thing. And it also involved a period of forgetting about it for like three years. And it was nuts. And it was truly like a one of a kind, incredible honey, apricot, apple. Like you can just imagine all those things in this beautiful, like, I think it was like 14% alcohol. I was just you know? ask, yeah. what was the alcohol? Yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was something you'd have like a little teeny taster yeah. of and just be like, oh my God, this is incredible. Yeah. So anyway, that's the story. <laughs> well, again, thank you. You are a true legend and I appreciate your time and your fun and your openness and the fact that you have not destroyed my flower sculpture over there. So it's time to refill glasses and have some snacks. Right on. Well, thanks for having uh, me here and uh, you've got an awesome place and a uh, great audience. And uh, yeah, I'm, I would be happy to come back anytime you want us. You probably shouldn't say that because I will take you up on that. I, I have all of your information now, so. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I'll find a bottle and bring it back. Okay. I've been a whole hour long talking about it. Yeah.